You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast, and I have uh, Stephen Ecker. Uh, Dr. Ecker is the Dean of Graduate School of uh, Biomedical Sciences, Director of the Office of Entrepreneurship, and a Professor of Biochemistry and Molecular Biology at the Mayo Clinic, and an Adjunct Professor in Genetics, Cell Biology, and Development at the University of Minnesota. And he's been uh, conducting genome engineering for 30 years. Lots of other accolades, um, but uh, Dr. Ecker, thanks for coming on the line. I appreciate it. Well, thanks for the opportunity. Yeah. So... uh, I mean, we could talk about many things you've done over the years, but what's the uh, what's the latest and greatest that you're working on and researching? Well, uh, so most of the work we're doing is really using genome engineering to actually touch the world. So I was an undergrad, uh, had the privilege of working with Carl Woese, University of Illinois, where I was hmm. uh, learning modern molecular biology while I was uh, intended to become a semiconductor physics design making chips. And uh, Carl convinced me that instead of, you know, figuring out what the, you know, how to make the next generation computer chips, why don't I figure out how the code of life works? It was a pretty compelling story. And um, I would argue that what I'm doing today is really that vision 30 years later. Um, we, we can now change uh, the DNA, not quickly, but we can change the DNA with the precision um, that you do edit a Microsoft Word document or you... Uh, program computer code. So that's that that reality is here. And so now the question is, is now that you, you can think of the code of life as a programmable system, what are you going to do with it? That's that's what the excitement is. Yeah, well, that's what I was going to ask you is what what are your plans? What do you want to do with it? You know, do you, are there are certain diseases that you want to tackle. Um, what kind of modifications are you hoping to make and to what effect? Right. So a couple of, a couple of broad thoughts is that you know, this technology, which has really been cooking for 30 years, is now actively, uh, as I said, touching the world. So there are products that are, that are getting built. Your, the first uh, commercial food products for gene, with gene editing um, have been USDA approved in the United States. Um, and the, the first products using gene editing for uh, uh, therapies for health are, are, in the, are in the pipeline. So I just wanted to give from a broader perspective, what does that mean? Um, so we assembled the Genome Writers Guild, which is a genome engineering society, um, to really build and communicate the, the, the high-end value of this technology in general. Um, what does it mean to be conducting this kind of research, uh, changing the code of life in a meaningful way? Uh, molecular surgery, in some, in some cases, is a useful term. Um, what are you doing in that space, and how do you do it responsibly? That, that means also educating people. It means understanding what you're doing, educating it, but it also means looking for where the real opportunities are to, to help the world. 
And we like to think of the, that it's going to come into one of two categories. You're either going to make a current product better in some way. Uh, an example would be uh, the, the the banana, the ubiquitous banana. 99% of the bananas in the world are made with the exact same genotype, so they're clones. Um, but once you've got, as we currently have, uh, some sort of a disease, uh, all of those bananas, 99% of them, are now subject to risk. Um so tools like CRISPR and Talens and the other technologies before them allow you to think strategically about building in the, uh, such resistance uh, with absolute minimum amount of changes. Uh, the banana was famous. There was an earlier generation of the banana that underwent this blight kind of a scenario, and you had to replace it with the current um, banana that's resistant to that blight, but now it has its own blight. Um, but the, you actually had to do a whole new, completely different banana to get into the current state. With, with think tools like CRISPR, you can, in principle, make a very small change um, and still have the core product be the same. So there are going to be products like the banana, coffee, uh, cocoa, uh, these food crops, uh, oranges, uh, anything that's uh, monogenic um, has the opportunity to have uh, gene editing um, provide a, 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 some sort of a of a ge basically genetic diversity uh, for these kinds of resistances while you keep the main trait intact, the main thing, the main reason that you like the navel oranges, right? Because it's got a flavor and it doesn't have seeds and it grows well. Um, and so, and so hey, quick, there's quick a question many, here. The question yeah. here, it would be interesting. Why not from a competitive standpoint, deliberately engineer diversity into bananas, for instance, again, I, for competitive reasons, for avoiding blight, for making the product more robust, you, know, you yeah, can make a series of similar bananas, again, but deliberately diverse, even for flavors, for various uses, et cetera. But the yeah, that's for sure. I, the, the, this, is, this is going to happen. Um, the, one of the major concerns is actually regulatory. I'm just, so it's, if you're, if you're going to bring something to touch the world, you have to think of the whole ecosystem. It's not just the science behind it. But um, how do you make sure that this new technology is um, being is developed and used responsibly. Uh, what does that mean? Uh, that means all the stakeholders need to have input. Um, everything from the consumers to the regulatory agencies need to be aware of the, of the updated on the science. Uh, you've got the public. Um, you are, you know, there, I, I don't know. I don't know if there's a, a major pushback against why you wouldn't want bananas in the world, but, um, uh, and then you have the history which is unfortunate of the GMO space, um, where it's where the the value proposition was largely to the companies and only indirectly to the consumer through price. In this case, you're talking about a, a, a difference. It's a fundamental. You either do have the bananas at scale or you don't have the product. Um, so I think I think it's going to be easier to communicate to a lot of people why you would want to do this. Uh, so I agree. There's also the opportunity to have different bananas and different flavors, and all because I mean the current bananas all really taste the same. Um, so so it is the opportunity when this new technology allows you to think about these kinds of things that are that are very very powerful. Yeah, it's interesting if you think about it. You know, in wine, I mean, there's tremendous diversity in apples, and in certain things, there's no diversity. Bananas, like you said, etc. Um, does that tell you anything? Does that teach you anything about how uh, diversity is on a you know, at least the phenotypically like small scale, like, you know, each apple, apples don't seem that different, but yet they are. Does that show you anything about a path to doing this in a good way 
or a monocrop like bananas or a path to, you know, when looking at a population of animals or people or whatever it is um, for making changes that are sustainable versus not. I, I think, I think it's actually um, a wonderful way to celebrate human ingenuity. We've been growing especially we've been, we've been domesticating plants and animals for more than 10,000 years. And it takes a long time to grow and combine and put the, the traits that have um, the, you know, the rapid growth, that are hardy, re- reliable products that we want. Um, I mean, if you look at corn versus the original um, uh, plant that led to maize, you wouldn't even recognize it. it human ingenuity, it's just what, what, what the CRISPR system allows you to do is instead of what takes a thousand years, in some cases, you can do in one lifetime or faster. Um, and and it's, it is our responsibility as a culture is to use it wisely. And I, I think we need to be thinking carefully about it. But I think, I think that in many cases, um, what you're doing is using the, you're doing the exact same approach that can be done with traditional breeding, but you can do it much more rapidly um, using the CRISPR. And it's much more precise. There's far fewer uh, different changes, unanticipated changes. Um, and you can literally sequence down to making sure that the change is just the one you're looking for. So it, it, it is actually one of those scenarios where it is cheaper and it is better and it is more precise. I, it really is one of those scenarios where in many cases, it, it, I, I don't, I can't, I, we, there's no known scientific major negative. Well, I mean, fundamentally, legend has it that it's not a one-to-one ratio of uh... A, a sequence, you know, a particular sequence in our genome, for instance, and one function. It seems like there's a lot of overlaps. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. What, it, it might be tricky to do this without causing, who knows, a oh, cascade no, of other not, effects. I'm not saying, no, I, so I hear what you're saying. The, the, the concept of uh, of the challenges of understanding and interpreting the genome as a resulting phenotype, that's complicated. In fact, that's my, that's my day job. It's my lab's job is I'm trying to understand the genome and using these kind of genome engineering tools to be able to, to do so. Um, but but what the, the technologies you're replacing have all of those same concerns, and they're far even less uh, uh, precise and controllable. So it's it's not it's not that it's not that we're we're eliminating those concerns, but we're actually we're at a limit, we're, 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 we're still still within those concerns while we're actually being far more precise on what we can and can't do. Okay, so what uh, I mean, how do you do such a thing? You know, you can cut out a gene sequence. Um, put something else in its place or just cut it out. So then how do you evaluate? How do you evaluate what it's going to do to the organism besides yeah, well, just right, right, growing so one and seeing what happens to it? Right, so intellectually, what's happening in a number of the fields is you're taking already existing um, alleles. So, it's, so the experiments have already been naturally run. And what you're doing is you're combining the genotypes much more quickly. The most, the most obvious one and easy to communicate are the hornless dairy cows. So cows and various cow breeds have been have been bred for uh, milk production or Angus beef for uh, for for steaks. And uh, you don't want an Angus beef to be your milk producing cow and you don't want the milk producing cow to necessarily be your steak uh, source. And there are naturally occurring cows that have that are hornless, but the primary dairy producing cows that we use have horns. And what we currently do is share them off. Um, and it's not very humane, and it takes time and effort. And what um, uh, a company with Comedetics has done has um, figured out and how to use gene editing to just put the hornless trait in the standard um, uh, uh, dairy cow background. So. 
you're not, so you're literally taking the already existing experiments and you're just doing it much more quickly. You could do that by breeding it and probably forget what it is, six or seven or eight different generations of cows to be able to do it and still maintain the milk production. This allows you to do it in, in one step. So those opportunities right. exist. There are many opportunities like that existing or the resistance, right, to various pathogens or blights um, in various in various uh, 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 animal and food crops and, and plant crops. Those are far more straightforward than what a lot of people throw up as complexity. We just start with those. We just we we we, we you know we have natural experiments that are out there. We're just using them, moving them around, um, and and putting those in place. We can start with those and get a feel for whether there's anything that's unanticipated uh, happening, um, um, and it gets us products that are making our lives better. Okay. So the second class what, what are, are these new things, right? Making new things that have never been done before. But anyway, I'll let you, what, what was your question? Uh, no, we'll go on to the making the new things part. It makes sense that, you know, if something exists in nature and it seems to be okay, you know, an animal with a certain trait that seems a lot safer than, yeah, than trying to make new things. But uh, we'll go ahead with the no, research there. Right. So, so new things is cool, right? New things is great. I, I'm very excited by that. Uh, I think, I think you, we can still do these in parallel. The, the being able to um, improve current uh, uh, products like I said, the banana or the Hornet's dairy cow that that's good. That's a good thing. That's a direct impact on the on the on the world in a in a meaningful way. It it will also get us some critical um, uh, understanding of of sort of uh, are we missing anything in our background in terms of of, of the science. While we explore in the labs, especially uh, critical areas for new things, and there are opportunities. I will give one example. Um, uh, I will call living therapies. So the, F the FDA approved a series of therapies that are either gene therapy, cell therapy. The most famous are these CAR T cells for um, these, you know, it's basically T cells and you turn them into, into nano robots to go out and target the cancer in the patient's. Uh, for leukemia. And you do that by adding this artificial gene uh, chimeric antigen receptor. Um, and it goes after, and those T cells can live five years or longer in the patient directly going out and killing all of the, of the tumor. And in some patients, um, in many patients, you're talking about a curative. It's an amazing story. Um, it's, it's, it was um, that, and then the, the checkpoint inhibitors really has brought uh, cancer immunotherapy to the forefront. The problem with those products is that they are made with a viral factory to, to be able to put those cells. And the cost of those viral factories, I think, roughly to set up is something, I don't know, $40 million. It's many, many millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars. And, and so if you want to be able to making, make these new products uh, go, you, you're you're either having to go after a, a large market size so that it makes sense to build that factory, um, or you need to be innovative on the technology. Um, the CAR T cell that Kite built, I'm trying to figure out, but I think most of that technology was from like 1970s or maybe early 80s. So I think that we have the opportunity to take, to take the technology for the last 30 years and bring it to market to, instead of it being a million dollars a patient to touch them for CAR T cells, to dramatically lower the cost, uh, at least of the technology. Um, the healthcare parts, um, obviously, that's a, a cost that's going to be um uh, uh, a variable that you won't touch, but you can make them cheaper and better and faster. And 
Um, I think that there's there's at least a 10x cost difference that's available if you want to use uh, especially non-viral approaches rather than the viral approaches and using technology like CAR-T's or like gene editing, you can use it in such a way, I think that you can be much more precise on the products, which should make the regulatory costs lower. So if you can make the overall... Wait, what, like, what, yeah. One quick question. Why would uh, viral factors be so expensive and then CRISPR-Cas9, which is from bacteria, not be as expensive, for instance? Well, so so the right now, the way we deliver the chimeric antigen receptor is a virus and it gets and then it integrates into the cells. So you actually have to make that factory that makes the virus. So... If you, um, you, you, you can probably, um, you can, you can do non-viral approaches that is also going to be cheaper that doesn't use CRISPR. You can use other gene editing like uh, transposons. And there are um, a, a number of, of businesses, companies, and researchers that do that. Um, the, the different, the, the challenge to transposons is you're still, every cell is a different product because the transposon integrates randomly. The advantage of, of gene editing uh, such as CRISPR or Talens uh, or even zinc fingers, all of those gene editing approaches is the possibility that the product, each cell that comes out of the uh, cellular factory can be um, very similar, much more similar, uh, because they can have an integration site, integration with a single copy at the same spot in the genome each time. And um, you you can do that in principle non-virally. So you can do this at a, at a scale where you don't have to have that big capital cost of the viral factory. Um, using um, a, a physical delivery system or maybe a chemical delivery system uh, that, that doesn't require such extensive capital costs. Okay, so these systems are much more precise, therefore um, a lot cheaper. No, the, the, the cheaper the cheaper, in the, the cheaper cost comes from the regulatory cost, actually, not from the production cost. Hmm. Um, really? Why is that? Every cell... Every cell that comes out of a viral factory um, is different. And so you actually have to worry about all the potential manifestations of, of what's going to happen to those cells, okay, including differential expression levels of the gene uh, uh, editing, the, the gene, sorry, the genome engineered product that you're adding. You have differential expression. So you don't really know which level of expression or even if the level of expression of whatever you're adding, the CAR vector, the, the chimeric antigen receptor, or if you're doing this for gene therapy, the gene therapy product, you don't, you get this, you, you get this, um, this sort of Poisson distribution of differential expression. So when you're doing the regulatory part, you actually have to account for the whole spectrum of outcomes, right? So that means it's not just more expensive because you have the initial cost of the virus, but you then have to actually go undergo and really and really carefully uh, characterize all of the products. The potential out, that downstream outcome is for the for the non-viral systems in the potential, right? The potential end game is that every cell that comes out of it based on a quality control could essentially be the same genetic change. So that complete, so that means every cell could have a very similar um, expression in terms of what the of the gene you're adding could actually have far fewer um, worrying about uh, integrating into oncogenes and causing potential cancers and other side effects, right? You really can and should be able to make it. And once you've got that initial platform built, many groups are doing this uh, strategy, then the subsequent platforms and subsequent platforms gets cheaper and cheaper. It gives you the opportunity to have sort of the Moore's law kind of effect um, in biology. Yeah, I've learned a little bit about endogenous retroviruses and how they integrate themselves into our genes, and then um, they can actually be re-expressed later or reactivated by other viruses. So maybe viral vectors, that's a danger as well. I don't know. 
I don't think so. I don't think so. You can you can make them so that they can't replicate. Um, that's pretty standard practice at this point. Um, but you do have to make the viral factory initially, um, and then the product itself can't replicate. That's part of the of the strategy for the for the factory. Okay. So, what are some of the front runners for uh, you know for these methods? What what do you think that's going to be common? Uh, you know, clinically for people, what kind of therapies? So I, I think the um, obvious one that everybody or there's a lot of people betting on are just uh, next generation CAR T cells. So you're looking at, at CAR T cells that are going to go after the leukemias that are resistant to CAR-19, um, which is the initial products. You've got um, many, many other, um, I would say, liquid tumors uh, that are getting built, um, and and the sort of the, the next Nobel Prize sort of afterwards is can he get CAR T cells to work in solid tumors? So all of those, all of that excitement is um, it, it is going to involve gene editing and genome engineering. It's just a co- at at its core in all of those cases. I think those are excitement. I think there's um, if you think about any of the cells that you can remove from the body and add back. So that would be pretty much anything in the, you know, anything you can give from blood donors are opportunities, um, natural killer cells, uh, B cells, uh, other immunological cells. Those are all very exciting platforms for uh, these kinds of changes uh, to become uh, novel living therapies down the road. And and I, th- I think the I was at the FDA meeting. I think they said there's 700 between those and, and gene straight gene therapy, uh, both ex vivo and some in vivo gene therapies, something like 700 INDs have been filed. So we're, we had three that were FDA approved in 2018, and now we're looking at this sort of this uh, pipeline that's coming out. Um, what I'm looking for are, is where the innovation goes from $800,000 a patient to $80,000 a patient to $8,000 a patient um, in terms of cost of goods. Um, I, I think that um, I'm, I'm looking for where, where those opportunities lie because um, these technologies have the potential to be hugely powerful and hugely valued. But if you want to, uh, you can use whatever lens you want from an access, a social justice point of view, actually from a uh, wealth generation point of view, uh, you want to be able to have the cost of goods much lower than what we're currently doing. I, you know, almost all technologies go through this scenario where, you know, the cost was very, very high. I'm, I'm just trying to think the, you know, the first Mac I bought and the Mac 2 CI, CI I bought was, wow, I think I paid $6,000 for it in the early, you know, in the, in the, I guess in the eighties. And um, that would be what, $20,000 today, right? Really a very expensive computer. Um, you know, the, those things are, are, you know, hundreds of dollars today. So we, we need to get to the point where we've got this ecosystem going, where the products that we're currently doing are successfully solving problems at, in a, in a, in a cost beneficial way. So cheaper, better, and faster. And then we set ourselves up for this flywheel where the next generation, the next generation, where that feeds the profits from that and the ecosystem uh, leads us to the next generation that's going to be cheaper. So you go from a, a single uh, transistor, right, developed, you know, invented in the 40s to your iPhone, but in the area of therapies. And the reason I'm excited by that is it opens up the door to really making custom therapies for uh, patients where the goal is potentially N equals one patient where the patient shows up at the door for the uh, for, for the center and you actually design a custom therapy just for that patient. Um, and and I, I don't think that's science fiction anymore. I, I think it is it is possible that for at least some classes of diseases, 
where such a therapy is going to be possible. Yeah, why would it cost, you know, 500000 or $800,000 for a single person to get, uh, you know, CAR-T therapy? Well, so I said it's, um, so only some, a subset of the B-cell lymphoma patients are eligible for CAR-T cells, so the market's small. Um, and you have to go through, you have to pay for the costs of that factory. So you have to amortize the factory over all of the patients that you can do. So it's a expensive, it's expensive cost to make the virus for each patient because it's, it's a personalized therapy for each patient. Um, it's their own set T cells that are modified and it's got that, that, that big cost of the, to go overcome the 40 plus million dollar factory that then has to be amortized over every single patient that gets a therapy out of it. Mm, makes sense. So what's, um, when we talk about horizon, what's the horizon? One year, five years? At what point do you think that uh, I don't know a lower cost regime will be available clinically <laughs> for people? Well, that's a great question. I was a March of Dimes pre-doctoral fellow, so I have March of Dimes was supported my graduate training. And um, I was told that gene therapy, you know, was going to be something I would see in five years. Um, for, for patients with rare diseases with birth defects. So um, it, obviously that didn't happen, right? So um, I believe that the next five years, we are going to define the next wave. So um, where are the areas? So CAR T cells for, for liquid tumors like leukemia, um, how many of the leukemias are going to be viable with CAR T cells? And then we're going to find out whether... whether um, other di- dispersed tumors like glioblastoma in the brain or uh, certain forms of skin cancer are amenable to CAR T cells. So I think the next five years, you're going to define sort of the boundaries. And then those particular areas are going to get are going to get significant investment in, in bringing the cost down and raising the access. So I look at that as sort of the next five-year uh, horizon. And, you know, there'll be a five years and then another five years and there's new, uh, tons of new products. In parallel, you've got in vivo gene therapy happening where the where you re- really do have these viral vectors and the viral factories and people are going to get very excited. And maybe the, fa- the current factory that costs $40 million becomes $20 million and maybe becomes $10 million. And maybe these costs go from $800,000 a patient to $400,000 a patient to $200,000 a patient. Those would all be very good opportunities um, because many of these patients, um, they, they $200,000 for, especially if it's curative, uh, would be a bargain for, based on the, the overall cost of treating their condition from, an, from a financial point of view and from a human and social point of view, being able to cure them and have substantive lifelong uh, is hugely uh, valuable uh, for the quality of life. So both quality of life and financial, um, those are those are boundaries are also going to be a lot of it defined the next five years. Um, what I'm, what I'm, I'm mean, yeah, I would. I mean, how many individual therapies have been created in aggregate over the past few years? And it must have been, I would think, substantial learnings to bring down the cost tremendously. Each therapy can't be that different, can it? Or is it just because of the regulatory cost that it's just unbelievably expensive? Yeah. So. That's a really great question. If you, we have 700 of these INDs coming down the pipeline, right? We can't, they can't all be these massive regulatory costs. I, I really actually think that um, the, the potential for, for if let's say, let's say these therapies where we're in abundance luck and everything works um, the healthcare, you know, they would bring the healthcare system down because you can't afford those costs. So um, it's going to be interesting of this bolus of 700 plus INDs, how many of them get boiled down into defined areas, maybe based on the different vector systems that are using. Maybe that'll that'll get us even a twofold cost efficiency is probably worth um, thinking carefully about right now. 
Um, I, I think the, the five to 10 year horizon, I was giving you the zero to five. I think the five to 10 year horizon is, can you really do it at a 10 X cost? Um, can you really be the next, the truly the next generation so that in such a way that all aspects of it is cheaper, including not just cost in, in terms of financial, but, uh, can you much more rapidly iterate? Um, can you do so with fewer patients because you're more likely to know what you're doing? Um, can you iterate and, um, and, and do the whole cycle, the whole therapeutic development cycle substantially uh, quicker than what we're currently doing. Uh, I don't know the answer to that, but I, that's where I look at for five to 10 years, because I think that's the enormous opportunity. I mean, we've been able to bring down the costs exponentially of so many things once it's understood. I can't see that this couldn't happen with this. I can't see that it's different from everything else computer chips and it just seems like it's going to get there you know but what, about insulin, be a really right? cheap level. what about insulin right so you, you have oh, because oh, it's been rising the cost but uh, yes yeah is that because of price manipulation or is that really because it's uh, it, all of a sudden harder to make no it's an economic ecosystem issue it is not a scientific issue so you know i'm i'm more than willing to have those conversations and i think those are the conversations we need to have Right. How, what, from a society good value point of view, um, I mean, insulin was, was, was patented, but the patent was sold for $1 for the, for, for humanity. Um, we haven't taken that gift and really made it, um, as effective and as open as we should for, um, whatever political capitalistic reasons you want to give. I think that um, I think we need to think carefully about this. We need to be. This is what I mean by the when we the Genome Writers Guild, for, for example. I just put it out there. We're our discussion is not just scientific. Okay, it is a, it is about access. It's about who should who and how should we set up the system to um, properly uh, function when um, a traditional capitalistic society is going to you know, strongly should strongly encourage the cost of an antibiotic should cost you $50,000 of treatment. Why? Cause it's life-saving, you know? Um, um, yeah. Okay. Um, what you said, uh, in some cases it's, well, not as easy as, but as, uh, direct as editing a Microsoft word document, any chances that, um, this technology can be used by, I don't know, people not in the lab, uh, that are just experimenting and cause all kinds of problems or by, you know, bad actors. Is there any talk of that or is that really remote? No, of course. I mean, the China experiment with people is inexcusable. Um, it, 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 but it's um, it, it was a technology that wasn't the um, that was full of predictable complications, scientific complications. It, but it was also, you know, as far as I can tell, I mean, I, I don't know all the data firsthand, but um, a lot of the documents were forged. Um, so you, you've got you've got a bad actor that's taking a technology that's very accessible and using it, right? And then there's this Russian scientist. I'm not using their names intentionally because I don't want to give them the celebrity. But you have a Russian scientist who's interest, who's basically saying they're going to do the same thing, right? And um, the technology is out. The horse is out of the barn. Um, you can, it's, it is, what is remarkable about it is that uh, it is a thousand times cheaper than it was in 2011 or more. I'd even be less than 10, maybe more than a thousand fold cheaper. And that was done over, you know, an eight year period or less. Uh, something that's a thousand times cheaper, right? You, we have the axiom that something that's 10 times cheaper is a new thing, even though it does the exact same thing. We're talking about something that's a thousand times cheaper. Um, we haven't caught up. We haven't really, um, in certain areas like uh, germline gene editing, germ, I would say germline uh, discussion. We don't even have IVF regulated in most parts of the world. Um, and, you know, pre-implantation diagnosis with simple DNA sequencing, freezing down the embryos, doing sequencing to figure out what you've got, and then selecting the embryos that go 
in, you know, for, for the surrogate mom, um, there's tons of, of potential for uh, bad actors to integrate. And then if you add the CRISPR system to that ecosystem, which only costs, I still estimate it's only maybe $400 with the, what was done in China to an experiment, really modest cost um, uh, to, to do these other things. It lends ourselves to, to high peril. And high concern. Um, I'm worried that that it's going to disrupt the scientists that are really trying to do this with responsibly and prevent prevent the the good um, because of a few bad actors. Well, very good. What's what's the best way for people to learn more about the, the work that you're engaged in and the discussions, the pros and cons, the issues? Where can they go? Yeah. So the genomewritersguild.org is our website. It's a nonprofit for. Uh, sharing and communicating. We have an annual meeting that includes um, uh, as many constituents as you can. From there's there's material on the site itself. Um, as a as a scientist, I encourage you to um, follow the the CRISPR field, although it is almost impossible for to follow it all. But I think there's a meaningful discussions that are happening in a few groups. There is the Arige group in Europe. Uh, that's also very much um, active in these kinds of public uh, communications. I'm uh, one of the external, one of the American board members. Um, we collaborate. There's a Japanese gene editing society. Um, they're very interested in uh, public communication and engagement, really engaging and trying to focus on educating the public on the good um, of this high potential value system. Um, but also sitting back and saying, okay, where, where are the lines? Where are the things that we shouldn't be doing right now um, in a meaningful way? But it, it's, that engagement is important, but it's, it's, it's difficult. I'm just going to say right now, dealing with the human germline is very difficult because we've avoided having that engagement essentially since IVF was developed. IVF is largely non-regulated globally. It's not regulated. Oh, what do you mean it's not regulated? How so? In most places, in the United States, there's no regulation. You could set up your own IVF clinic tomorrow. Well, that's pretty bad. Okay. I didn't realize that. <laughs> yeah, this is, how, this is where we're at, right? So, you know, it's difficult. You know, I'd like to have a much deeper conversation, uh, really, the details for how you want to do gene editing in the germline. What would be reasonable when you can't even start to have that conversation because uh, the, the IVF clinics are not even being regulated? Okay. Well, well very good. I appreciate your, uh, your time and your frank discussion. Um, wh- what's the best way for folks to, uh, again, I don't know if there's any follow-up with you or it's better to go to the uh, the foundation that you're working with. I mean, what's the best way for people to learn more or has it already been discussed and we'll kind of leave it at that. I I strongly encourage you to go to the Genome Writers Guild uh, website. That's a, it's designed for public um, communication and engagement. Uh, Ask questions there. And there are a rich group of international scientists excited to have the conversation and, and to answer anybody's questions. Okay. Very good, Steve. Thank you for coming. You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. 
No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Thank you.